Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in to an hour of science. We have a big show ahead for you. We've got guests from all over the place today, which is going to be a bit of fun. Dr. Ailey's in the studio. Good morning, madam. I'm here. Exciting. It's a great Sunday. Beautiful <laughs> and sunny bit... outside. I'm so excited. Spring's just got me all, you yeah, know, excited you're, you're about really the world. fired up. I am. <laughs> What's in that cup? Yeah. It's water, I swear. <laughs> yeah, very good. Also in the studio is Dr. Sarah Best from uh, Walter and Liza Hall Institute. It's going to be a guest later in the show, but we're going to keep her in for the whole hour. How are you going, Sarah? Good. I'm very happy to be here. It's great to see you. Great to have you in the studio again. You're one of an old friend of the show. And online from New Zealand, we have... Dr. Janine Kripner, she's been on the show before. Janine's a volcanologist and honorary associate researcher at the University of Waikato in New Zealand. Hey, Janine, how are you going? Hey, good. How are you doing? Good. It's great to uh, great to have you back. I think I'm trying to remember what we were talking about last time. No doubt some volcanoes. There's been some big explosions over the last sort of year. Um, is everyone still getting over the, the big one, you know, that happened that sent the shockwaves around the world in the vol- volcanology world? Oh, goodness, the Tongan eruption. Mm. Yeah, we'll be learning about that for decades to come, I'm sure. Yeah, it's cool stuff. Now, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you today is because you've been uh, looking back in time to when you were at primary school and and thinking back to what um, influenced you, and that's resulted in you putting forward an award for for young girls in in primary school who are interested in science. But before we get to that, um, tell us a bit about how you got into volcanology, because I remember when when I was a kid, like it wasn't like there were a whole lot of volcanologists running around that you could um, look up to. What, What inspired you? Yeah, I I definitely didn't know that a volcanologist was a thing that people could be. Um, I loved volcanoes. Here where I am in Te Aumutu in New Zealand, I'm surrounded by almost a ring of extinct volcanoes. But further down south, we had uh, more active volcanoes. Um, And I loved it when we went down there for um, family trips. It wasn't that often, but it definitely left an impression. And when I was 13 in geography class, a teacher wrote volcanologists on the board, explained that was a scientist who works on volcanoes. And I was like, that's what I am. That was it. 13, I was like, that's my life sorted. I'm done. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah. Do you have a choice when you live surrounded by extinct volcanoes to become something else or is that? Well, I mean, I'm the only one that I know of here. (laughs) So everyone else seems to have found something else. (laughs) (laughs) That's good stuff. And tell us, Janine, what's the boundary that you have to get to to be an extinct volcano versus a dormant volcano? How's, How's that definition work? Um, basically, it's when the magma source is no longer there. Oh. So where I am, the tectonic slab has rolled backwards. So the area producing magma is no longer below where I am now. It's more eastward. Right. So if you've got no magmatic um, input into the system, that would be extinct. Right. So it's 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 a tough definition yeah. to have. But with something like this, we can look at where the slab is and we know that these volcanoes have interrupted in millions of years. Right. So they get that, that label. Yeah. And how do you, like, how do you know that the magma is no longer there? Like, how do we measure that? 
Um, it's like we can look at when the last eruptions occurred, which these ones were mil- several million years ago. Right. Um, but it's also the broader geophysical studies on the tectonic slabs and where they are now. And that, that's definitely not my area of study. <laughs> but um, these things do take inter- interdisciplinary research to yeah. understand. Yeah. I saw the other day on Twitter you, you put up some material and it was about various eruptions, um, both real ones that have been filmed and ones from films. Uh, are the real ones more spectacular? I mean, you know, we have such special effects these days, but some of the real ones are quite extraordinary. Like, what, what's your sort of view on the real versus the CGI type version? Um, it's getting better. Um, I think Weta Workshop, I think they are the ones... I think I'm not totally sure on this, but I think they've done the more recent ones like the Loki production. Mm. Maybe I know they at least worked on that. Um, that was pretty good. They had Vesuvius erupting in the Loki series. That was, that was a good one. Um, but if you look back not too long ago, they were pretty, pretty rough, but Dante's peak, which was 1997, I think is, is probably still one of the best eruptions out there other than the fact that there shouldn't have been a lava flow, but right. okay. the, the, the big, Big climactic eruption was pretty good. Yeah, I watched that with my 10-year-old a few months back, and it holds up. You know, most old films, when I make him watch things, he's like, Dad, this is not, you know, the effects are not good. <laughs> but Dante's Peak, he, he's classified as, you know, one of the best volcano films he's seen, which is... Uh, wow, I thought was, child approved. Yeah, child approved. Now, let's uh, let's talk about the kids, because this um, this scenario you put together for your old school is, is pretty interesting. Tell us about what you're doing there. Yeah, so um, I went to St. Patrick's School, my local Tiamatu Primary School. Um, they asked me when I moved home in 2020 to give their prize-giving address, which is basically um, I wanted to really ins- like empower these kids, like that they can they can make a difference. They can go out there and do these big things. You know, I'm from I'm from, I'm from a farming town. I didn't know any scientists. Um, as I said, I didn't know what a volcanologist was back then. So just really encouraging these kids to go out there and do big, crazy stuff, um, to have faith in themselves. And I sat through the prize giving and I noticed there was nothing there for science. Um, and these are five to 12 year olds, so they're not really doing science classes. But science isn't just about scientific classes, right? It's about curiosity. It's about looking at problems in different ways and problem solving and going out and looking at the environment around you. So, yeah, I was like, wait, is this something you can do? Can you just donate an award? Do you have to die before you can donate an award? (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully not. So I got in touch with the principal and she was really thrilled with the idea. So, yeah, the hardest part was just deciding what trophy to get because I'm really indecisive. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and is it um, for a specific group or age group or gender or what's for the anyone. for anyone who's interested in anyone. science? Yeah. yeah, I really think that you know scientific curiosity and scientific thinking isn't something that is defined in a classroom. It's it's the way you go about looking at problems, and we do that from basically you know as soon as we can start walking around and moving and talking. Mm. So I don't think that that is is really restricted to a certain age group. Yep, excellent. And has it been awarded as yet? Has there been an inaugural year? No, this will be the first year, and I'll be coming back each year to actually hand it out. So it's going to be amazing seeing the little girls who get this award each year going forward. Yeah, that sounds fantastic, and I think uh, they're no doubt going to be looking up to you as, you know, someone who's an actual scientist. You know, you're an actual volcanologist, so they'll (laughs) be like, oh, there's a real one. There's a real one that do exist. (laughs) Um, But, you know, especially in that area of New Zealand where, you know, as you say, it's not too far to see some, active sort of really active 
tectonic activity and that going on and you know coming from australia we kind of like we, we have an earthquake of a you know 2.0 here and we get excited um but you know we're not seeing the kind of activity that you are there on the on the plate boundary which is which is just you know extraordinary but for kids that you know it's part of the reason why you have such incredible landscapes over there is because you know all of that's going on so them understanding that would be cool Pre- presumably too i mean it doesn't matter whether they end up being scientists as long as they study more science is what we would hope i suppose yeah, and I mean the, the the skills you can learn in science you can apply to any field, right? It's mm. it's the way of looking at problems, the way of trying to do something better. So no, it's def- I definitely don't want to be like you should go into science now. Like whatever they're they should, I want kids to follow their hearts. You know, yeah. whatever they're interested in, whatever sparks joy in these kids is where they should be going. But you can take those qualities and apply it to every area of life. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Janine, look, great talking to you again. Um, we will eagerly await the next uh, volcanic eruption where no one's affected. We, you know, we don't want people to have to die for our next interview, but um, you know, we will chat to you again when, when something big happens and, and we need to know what's going on, as we did with the Tonga explosion, which was quite extraordinary, I suppose. And as you say, people will be studying that for a, for a long time. So good luck um, with the school. I hope it's a, it's a good um, ceremony or whatever you're having there with them when you get to hand over the award and and inspire some of these young kids thank you very much folks that was dr janine kripnuff from the uh, university of wakato in new zealand a honorary associate researcher there and a volcanologist Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us now is Dr. Agnese Barbensi from the University of Melbourne's School of Maths and Statistics. Welcome. How are you going? Hi, I'm great. Yeah, it's excited to be here. It's great to have you in here. Now, you've got a long backstory because you've only just come with your husband here to Australia in yeah. May, but you're employed to work here in 2020. Is that right? No, I was supposed to come in 2020, 2020? and we started our contract in November 2021 yep. um, remotely from the UK with this you know, weird arrangement between Uni of Melbourne and Uni of Oxford. Right. And you were at Oxford before yeah. doing mathematics. Yeah. What gets a person into mathematics, I always ask? Oh, um, that's a great question. Uh, in my case, so, uh, in my family, uh, both my parents were uh, into maths. Right. My mom, she was a high school teacher. Uh, and my dad, he did something else as a job, but he studied uh, maths as well at uni. Right. And my sister before me, she went into maths. And so, you know, it was a little bit, I was you know, <laughs> inspired by all of these people, I guess. Yeah. And, and you're from Italy originally? Yeah. Which yeah, part yeah. of Italy? Uh, Tuscany. Tuscany. Yeah. So you're sitting around the table. And you're all just chatting about maths. Oh, the actually, family. Is no, that... we didn't. <laughs> but, you know, it was in the air, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's interesting when it's sort of normalized in, yeah. in the family that maths yeah. is just a good thing yeah. to do. And, um, and so, and, but you've got into a very specific area, which is like, it's topology, right? It's yeah. like, and uh, you're going to do a better job than me. So tell me, what, what, is, what is a topologist? What do they do? So uh, topologists are mathematicians that are interested in understanding um, and studying Studying the shapes of objects, okay. and they do that by looking at those features of these shapes that do not change by so-called continuous deformation. So, um, a transformation of a shape that involves, for example, twisting or bending or mm-hmm. stretching, or more in general, anything that does not involve, you know, cutting, gluing, or creating uh, holes or covering holes. Right, right. So, so if I grab a piece of chewing gum and I 
move it around in my mouth. That's Perfect. Topology. That's, yeah. that's topology. That's right. a continuous deformation. And, you know, perhaps uh, the classic standard question uh, uh, a topologist is interested in is uh, counting how many holes a shape might have. So right. how many loops, holes, or voids, or higher dimensional holes, whatever that means. Right. Is this where all the sort of stuff around knots comes into maths? Definitely, is that, yeah. Right. Knot theory is uh, a sub subfield, sub-branch of mathematics. And that's actually how I started my oh, right. you know, uh, research career. I was, um, at the beginning, an applied knot theorist. So right. I was using a knot theory to study um, biological, uh, biological uh, questions. Yeah. So, I mean, Sarah here works in cancer, in genomics and so mm-hmm. forth. So, you know, anything to do with pro- proteins folding gets Sarah pretty excited, right, Sarah? Is that right? Absolutely. And I was even thinking about just the shapes of cells and now that we've got all these exciting technologies, how topology could really be used to enhance what we're currently looking at. Yeah. yeah. Is, is that the sort of work you're doing in biology? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, some of that, yeah. Some. So, I mean, you just talked about an application there. What, what are the broader applications? Because I hear constant defamation and I'm in an earth science department. So I'm thinking about how, you know, um, earth moves and changes and rocks deform and things like that. I mean... The breadth of application here must be quite extensive. What are some of the things that people working on, you know, work on? It really is. I mean, you name it and you have it like uh, cancer research, for example, or, uh, you know, brain research. So like uh, a classical application of uh, topology or better of topological data analysis, which is, you know, the applied version of topology has to do with uh, identifying uh, patterns uh, uh, in... um, in the brain uh, seen as a network in which nodes are the neurons and there is two neurons are connected if there is a synapsis between them. So you can interpret that as a mathematical object called a network or a graph and topology can be used to find patterns uh, uh, in this network or yeah. in general, again, find patterns in uh, complex uh, systems. That's interesting. And, and when, you, when you look at the mathematics there, is this something that gives you approximations? Is, are the sorts of equations and so forth that you're using give you a, a sort of approximation to something or are you looking at sort of mathematical formulations that give you a, a defined number or value? Like, is it where, where does it sit? If I have to pick one, definitely the first. So you are, uh, you know, you are uh, finding uh, a an approximation for the object you want to study, uh, trying to maintain only the aspects you're interested in, mm. only the those features you can somehow quantify or, um, you know, uh, so those features you can associate a meaning yeah. with. Yeah, interesting. And, like, biology is messy. It is. I mean, it's. It really, I mean, Sarah loves it, but it's no. it's for us sort of physical sciences people, of which there are three in the room. We look at biology and we say it's messy. There's too many yeah. input parameters. Yeah. How do you go about determining which input parameters have an impact on the modelling before you do the modelling? Like, how do you choose? Oh, that's a great question. I, I, I'm not sure how how to answer. What I do is, you know, I know I'm very comfortable with the tools that I know, yep. so I kind of uh, look. From the other point of view, I, I am comfortable with the tools I know. I'm comfortable with the mathematics I know. So I try to understand which questions this math can help mm. me with, mm-hmm. depending on the application, rather than the other way around. Right. You know, rather than starting from the data and uh, trying to use, pick 
mathematical uh, mathematical tools to get the answer. I start from the tool. That's what I know. That's what I can use, and I try to see what can this tool tell me about things that I'm interested in. Yeah, interesting. And and with those tools, is there a lot of advancement in the area? Because I, I had a few friends in maths years ago, and they always said there were two parts to their work. There were the parts where they did applications with other fields, which was really interesting, and there were the parts where they were advancing mathematics as a field in itself. Uh, definitely. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, you yeah, you're doing both. and, and I, I, I try to do some of both. Yeah, no, yeah. You need both. People yeah. need both. Yeah, I, I try to do my best to do a little bit of both. You know? Yeah. Um, and what what would the latest sort of stuff look like in terms of the, the field and the tools? I mean, what sort of new things are there in, in the maths world? So something that people are very interested uh, right now in the in topological data analysis is uh, finding the best way possible to, you know, topological data analysis helps you uh, identify, quantify topological features in data, okay? And that's, you know, after 10, 20 years of research, that's almost, you know, not straightforward, but almost. What's what's more complicated is finding the best way to understand exactly which which portions, which points in your your data set are responsible for the formation of those Mm. features. So that's something, for example, uh, with um, with um, my boss and other colleagues, that's something we're very interested in at, at the moment, like finding new um, mathematical framework to find the best way to interpret features directly in the data yep. and work with them. Yeah, very cool stuff. So, you know, the, I did master third year uni, but most of my math knowledge, to be honest, comes from the film A Beautiful Mind. So, you know, that, that's about where I'm at. Uh, these days but um in in terms of you know your daily work i mean we were just talking to to janine kribner from new zealand about inspiring young kids to you know do volcanology and and to be fair you know volcanoes easy interesting easy to get people involved but what what does it look like for you in terms of your day with maths i mean is it chalkboards and, and equations is it computers non-stop i mean what, what does it what does it look like in my case half the time is uh, computers so writing code and then looking staring at the output trying you know to make the the data talk to me yep. and the rest of the time is talking to other people so yeah. you know brainstorming uh, discussing uh, discussing tools discussing uh, the um, data outputs the computation outputs and everything so the my research is uh, collaborative in nature so it's crucial mm. to have good relationship with colleagues and you know to um, exploit everybody's uh, um, exploit everybody's uh, potential uh, the most you know yeah yeah absolutely and so in that sense you know your collaborations are they really more about working with other mathematicians or is that about working with you know biologists or, or other people as well I mean yeah how does well, that work really both um, I have had collaborations with uh, people in physics, in chemistry, in bio, lots of mathematicians, of course, from different fields, theoretical mathematicians or applied mathematicians, or, you mm. know, uh, really, we need lots of different expertise. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? I think if you're, if you're not sure which science to go into and you want to play with all of them, mathematics is probably a good, uh, a good way think, to go. <laughs> I think so. I yeah. think so. It's a safe choice. That's safe what choice. I, yeah. That's what I tell uh, you know, students that think about studying maths. It's a safe choice because it gives you possibilities and, you know... Um, yeah, yeah. I used to say the same thing about astrophysics because not many people would end up working in astrophysics yeah. long term, but they all ended up in you know biostatistics yeah. and working in medical facilities and all sorts of things because their maths abilities were yeah. you know quite quite extraordinary. So, and everyone needs that 
you know, in every field these days because fields are more competitive and you need to be able to do that sort of analysis. It's far more complicated. I agree, yeah. Yeah. And in terms of your sort of work at the University of Melbourne, what will be the focus there? Um, I guess keep keeping doing what I do now. So, you know, uh, the big theme behind my research is trying to understand how shape influence, influences behavior. So yep. that's what I'm really interested in and that's what I want to do in the next, you know, five to ten years right. or whatever, yeah. yeah. And on what scale is that? Are we talking on, you know, like cell sort of scales and, or DNA sort of scale? Like what, what scale are we looking at in terms of shape and behavior? Um, it, really, it really depends. So um, currently I have projects that involve uh, uh, looking at genome 3D structure, for example, or looking at a completely different scale, looking at animal trajectories, and again, trying to understand the shape that these trajectories uh, um, uh, create in space and try to understand things about the animal behavior from them, for example. Do, do you get down to the sort of quantum realm or are you staying clear of that? I, I don't. <laughs> Stay clear of that. Good move, good move. <laughs> well, that was going to be my question. I mean, you know, when you're looking at these shapes, is it the same depending on the scale you're looking at? You know, mm. do, does the same mathematics apply if you're looking at deformation of the Earth's crust versus deformation of some tiny, minuscule little part of a DNA structure? I don't, I don't know. I'm not a biologist, <laughs> yeah. but, you know. <laughs> no, I'm uh, exactly the same for me, yeah. Yeah, I, wow. I really don't look at the scale. Yeah, I find that amazing that you can, you can have that kind of same shape and structure mm. and the same underlying principles yeah. for something that is size of the earth or the size of something yeah, that's definitely. much much smaller that's that's incredible yeah because you know in, in this kind of maths uh what really matters are um relationship between you know different different pieces of the thing you want to study so that doesn't really you know it, it doesn't really matter whether uh this happens at super large scale or a super super small yeah. scale it just you know pairwise relationship if you want yeah and you say, I have to say, uh, you came from a obviously a mathematically interested family, but were you like brilliant at maths throughout school? Was that like your subject, or did you come to that sort of later? Yeah. Until I was sixteen or seventeen, I was sure, you know, sure I was going to study literature and become right. a writer or whatever. And then at some point, I don't know, uh, something happened. I. I don't know. I I became more interested in science stuff, and I felt like I needed something. Uh, at that point in my life, I needed something, something like mathematics or mm. science. I, I I felt like I needed that to grow up somehow. And then <laughs> and then since I started, I really loved it from day one. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. I, I don't think I've met a mathematician that said they were brilliant at maths when they were in primary school, they were brilliant at maths in, in high school, and then they just kept doing maths. Most of them, because maths at university level is very different to maths at high school level, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I found maths at university level more enjoyable because it had more meaning. Definitely. Is that, is that your definitely. experience? Yeah, no, definitely, 100%. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that's one thing that we need to get out there, the students that, you know, when they're coming through, that, you know, long division, yeah. yeah, I found the meaning of that recently. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. My son asked me to help him with long division. That was the meaning for me, is being able to help my kids learn something that I felt meaningless. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but when you get to university, mathematics all of a sudden has real applications in the mm-hmm. real world, and it feels very different than what you would do in high school or primary yeah. school. And also there's some aesthetic, you know, behind it. It's beautiful. Uh, math and uni uh, it starts, you know, it's immediately beautiful. Even the 
first year courses, you know, linear algebra or the first yeah. abstract algebra courses. They're just, you know, beautiful. Yeah, so that's the difference between a mathematician and a physicist. See, I never got to the beauty part. <laughs> I didn't think I understood it well enough. <laughs> you too no, me neither. I, I, yeah. I mean, you know. I'm atmospheric scientist, it's applied mathematics, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not that beautiful, pure, you know, stuff, which is, it's so abstract, but it's so interesting and a real creative pursuit, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's cool stuff. So. Well, look, Agnese, thanks so much for coming in today. It's great, it's great to talk to you about maths and great to have you here in Australia joining the team at University of Melbourne. And I think um, it will be good to have you as a spokesperson out there for many who are coming through school as well and learning about maths and the joy of maths. And I just love hearing about your, your stories, about your, your family all being sort of these mathematicians, but you don't talk about it. You know, it's just, <laughs> I think it's kind of cool. So thanks so much for being on Einstein and Gogo. Thank you for having me here. It You're was ver- great. Thank you. Very welcome. Triple R. Dr. Sarah Best is still in the studio with us. Sarah, you have been arranging a monstrous dinner that's coming up on the 8th of October. Um, Tell us about that. So, fortunately, I haven't been organising it, but I get to to rock up and talk. (laughs) So, this is the Dine for a Cure um, philanthropic dinner to raise money for brain cancer research. And it's on the 8th of October. And this year, the amazing philanthropists are raising money for the Brain Cancer Centre. Right. Which is um, the new centre. It's nearly a year old. Mm. Um, That's a virtual centre of researchers, clinicians, surgeons, all aiming to cure brain cancer. So we're all on a single mission. Mm. And that's been based on an initial donation from Carrie Bickmore's Carrie's Beans yeah, for Brain Cancer. Yeah. I remember, I think we spoke to you when that first happened and um, yeah, she put in quite a substantial $10 million? I can't remember. Yeah, a, an amazing yeah, a amount, of money. a yep. fantastic amount of money. And so it's it's been really exciting to see how everything's moved forward in this year and we're really excited to see how... Just the the beginnings of new research directions can really grow Mm. and how much we've been able to achieve in such little time. Yeah, I think it's great too when you're not spending 90% of your time writing grants and you can actually go into the lab and do some work. (laughs) (laughs) Nice time. It's fantastic. I was in the lab all day Friday, so I know how you mean. (laughs) Right, all day Friday. Uh, Friday was a public holiday. Oh, well, you know. Didn't get the memo. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> didn't, that come good. didn't come through my email. Didn't come through email. Now, in, in, terms of, um, in terms of the donors and so forth, though, that you've had, I mean, what does that look like when you take them through a facility like WeHi? I mean, do you, do you let them touch stuff? Well, no. <laughs> the first thing we do is put lab coats, safety glasses and gloves on yep. them. Kid them up. Yep. <laughs> But um, but we get to take them through the lab and take them into the area where we really do all the research and all the fun stuff happens and really get an opportunity to explain to them about how we're investigating brain cancer research and, and any kind of research when people take groups through the lab and really give them a, a peek into what we're looking at. Mm. So maybe they look at cells under the microscope or some... Um, cancer histology slides under a different type of microscope so they really get to to see behind the curtain of of what we're doing yeah and and i mean most of the donors i've come across over the years they're they're not necessarily scientifically trained or or um you know have been scientists but they're they're interested 
I think Absolutely. is it, you know, and so there's a lot of scope there to really upskill them in terms of their knowledge of what goes, you know, not not what they saw in the movies in terms <laughs> of what a scientist is, you know, but um, you know, but what it actually looks like to be in, in a scientific lab and what those challenges are and what a day looks like. Absolutely, and when um, we get philanthropic donors who have been touched by mm. the type of cancer that they want to donate towards, such as as this group, Hamish, Carolyn, Roz, and Siobhan. Um, you know, they've all been personally impacted by brain yep. cancer in their families. And so being able to explain how we're investigating new treatments and how we're really researching to better understand the disease, it really, um, it really gets to take everyone on a journey yep. and, and have them walk out being uplifted and energised, but also understanding a bit more about what we're doing is, um, is the perfect goal. Yeah, yeah. And so... I mean, you mentioned at the start that this, this, uh, the Brain Centre is, is this kind of um, group of, of researchers and clinicians and everything. I mean, how does that structure really benefit what you're doing? I'm assuming that means that you, you can actually, you know, work with patients on this stuff, right? I mean, having that structure as opposed to just kind of a, you know, research in the lab structure, what kind of benefits does that bring to the science and being able to push it forward? It's been really fantastic. So to work directly with a multidisciplinary group where you can sit in a room, as we often do, we have a lot more meetings than, than a normal collaboration, mm. um, and really talk about what are the key issues that people are facing, what are different ideas of ways that we can address these, who's been doing some exciting experiments that have um, exposed something that maybe we should look into faster and it really accelerates how we can collaborate together. So it's one thing having a a traditional collaboration uh, where you do work closely with people. Generally, it's um, the lab thinks of an idea and gets moving with it and then and brings in a bioinformatician and then brings in a clinician. Oh, can I have five patients for that? Or, Or can you like tell me what's the power calculation for this in this instance everyone sits there at the beginning mm. and we're yep. all really working through the problem right from the outset together and that's a really big difference when you ask someone for a little bit of information down the track they're not really involved but they kind of are mm. but but when everyone's sitting in the room at the beginning of something yeah. then you can really accelerate everyone's potential yeah they've all got shares in the in the outcome at that point don't they you, you sort of drag them in and um in terms of the just the, the cancer itself i mean two, so the two parts of this question i mean one is obviously brain cancer is affecting such a critical part of the body i mean it's kind of like you don't hear people talk about heart cancer every day you know but brain cancer is quite a, a common type of cancer so is is it different to other cancers in the body or is it more problematic just because of its location um you know and affecting such an important part of our bodies yeah that's a great question and and there's there's many different reasons why brain cancer has been more challenging to target and to identify new treatments it's considered a solid tumor but it's actually arises within a electrical network right. in the brain Um, It's connected with neurons and some amazing research that's come out in the last few years has really highlighted how much glioma cells and neurons actually interconnect and talk to each other. So the the electrical environment really impacts the direction of the tumour. We also have this 
thing um, called the blood-brain barrier, which protects our brains from mm. nasties and from too many immune cells coming in. But then when we have something like a brain tumour arising, then it can actually inhibit helpful immune cells coming in and fighting the tumour or it can stop treatments from actually being able to diffuse into the tumour where it's needed. So that's a, that's a fascinating comment you made there because I've always had this um, understanding that the ability to get chemicals into the brain is often harder because of the blood-brain barrier. So, you know, often we dose the crap out of our whole body to get a small amount into the brain, which if we're talking about chemotherapies and, you know, relatively dangerous, you know, poisons in a way, then that that is really problematic. But the idea that the immune system would be restricted as well is not something I thought of. What, what does that mean for things like some of the amazing new immunotherapies and so forth where that's seen as the bright light on the hill of of cancer treatments yeah absolutely well the the thing is with immunotherapy is when we're unleashing a patient's immune system to reinvigorate itself against mm. a cancer it's really not been effective in primary brain cancers yep and we'd call primary brain cancers being in an immunosuppressive environment which means that there's not, not many um, signals that really telling immune cells to go there and the blood-brain barrier has an impact as, as well yep. on that. And so we really, uh, one of the research directions of the Brain Cancer Centre is to identify how we can better enhance immune cells coming into the brain and um, Professor Misty Jenkins' lab is really investigating that in terms of CAR T-cells and supercharged T-cells. And so it's a really interesting line of research to really yeah. identify where are the immune cells going. We've got a lot of uh, immune cells called macrophages and microglia, which kind of sit around and watch what's happening, but we're not getting the immune cells that are really packing a punch, the T cells, the NK cells. So we really need to identify how we can get them in there a bit better. Yeah. Now, you uh, you sent me some material that said you were looking at spatial technologies to investigate brain cancer. What does that mean? Yeah, so... We're really excited about spatial multiomics. Right. So, um, First time I've heard that phrase. <laughs> so, so what? All right, all that. let me break it down. Yeah. <laughs> so multiomics is like the hot term on the street at the moment. So, <laughs> Which street? <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> street you want. It's, it's Royal Parade, yeah. right, right out the front of Weehaw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You're crossing um, the road there and people are just saying multiomics, yeah. yeah. You start hearing For everywhere. It's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> So omics technologies are investigating um, the molecular biology of cell. Okay. So you've got the DNA and the genome, so you look at genomics. You have your RNA and the transcriptome, and you perform transcriptomics. The protein, the proteome, the proteomics, and my favourite, the metabolome, metabolomics. Right, so, so all omics. All, all of the, omics. All the multi-omics. Yep. Yep. And then what we can do now is not just investigate them um, and an average level of what's happening in the cancer. We can actually look at that from a single cell level and also in the configuration of the cancer. Right. And so the spatial omics technologies are really exciting and I want to use a, a Lego analogy for you. Go. So, I love a good Lego analogy. <laughs> so if, if you're sitting there in the studio and I can't see what you're making and you, you make um, a, a house out of Lego bricks... And I need to work out what have you made. And our first um, technologies where we're looking at the average approximation of bulk materials, like bulk transcriptomics, bulk metabolomics, 
you would blend that all together and all your red, green and blue blicks would kind of turn into a purple colour. And so okay. I'd say, okay, you've got a purple something. Right. Okay. And, well, you know, you get a bit of information out of that, but it's not really great. Yep. So then we have single-cell transcriptomics or single-cell omics, and that's where I could take each uh, Lego brick off your house and I could say, well, you've got 10 blue bricks and 15 red bricks. So yep. I don't know what you've made, but um, you've you know got this colour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what the pieces are. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But you don't know what the rooms look like. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. It could be anything. It could be a car. It could be a house. Yep. So um, spatial multi-omics actually I can see what you've made. I can see where all the Lego bricks are, what they're next to, the individual colours and get all that information so we can really understand heterogeneity and how different cells that are next to each other that are actually quite different, will have different drug properties, will have different um, ways that we can treat them. It's really going to revolutionise how we think about cancer biology and any other kind of biology as well yeah that's fascinating and and what does that look like in the lab is this is this you know what i used to you know annoyingly referred to as bucket chemistry type work or is it like is it <laughs> is it under you know um are we talking about the the synchrotron are we talking about like how do you pull out that level of information the multi-system omics sort of stuff yeah so there's a few different ways so each of the different omics have their different technologies that mm. we use so for example um proteomics um we can actually take a slice of our tumour on a glass slide and stain with different antibodies up to 60 and, um, and then be able to use mass spectrometry to look at which antibody is where. Right. And that's okay. called the MIBI-scope. Um, spatial metabolomics, um, we can actually take a frozen section of um, tumour on a very special coded slide and perform multi mass spectrometry at every five micron pixel. So wow. five okay. micron is about the size of a cell. Right. A so, you, so you so you're talking about there determining exact composi- composition, like chemical composition, with mass spectroscopy. Um, every five microns. So, exactly. So uh, human hair is 50, 50 microns wide. Um, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, 50 microns wide. So, you know, tenth of a human hair, every step you, you get a point and say that's what's in it. Yeah, so we get this beautiful pixelated image that's very close to single cell resolution, mm. if not, depending on the size of your cell. And we can actually see what's happening, what's different, where is glutamate being produced, where is glutamine, and really identify in the tumour, uh, amongst the immune cells, amongst the normal cells, what's going on. So how do they differ from tumour to tumour in different people? I mean, do you get a huge diversity or do you find that these these structures or building blocks largely look very similar and therefore I'm assuming that means you could start to think about therapies that might attack those? Absolutely. So um, every patient is slightly different and this technology is extremely expensive. So it's, as always, it's about finding a balance between what um, kind of power calculation can we do to identify the number of patients that we need to identify the natural variation? And it depends on your question. If you're asking a very simple question, like where are the immune cells, what are they doing, where are the tumour cells, what are they doing, there's less nuance. But um, if you're asking a really uh, intricate question, you probably need more samples. Mm. So 
Interesting. Yeah. And when when you talk about you know the the goal here, like the cure brain cancer kind of goal, do, I mean, do you do you see that as a as a feasible endpoint, Sarah? Is that something that we will get to, or are we going to get to a managing brain cancer in the, in a similar way to the way we manage you know HIV status and so forth? And we you know there's and diabetes, you know, there's many conditions that we manage so people live naturally long lives um, and, and very effective lives, but. Will that be where we're going with brain cancer, or do you think there's a chance we'll be able to just switch it off? No, I think um, it's always been um, my belief from cancer research point of view, no matter which type of cancer we're looking at, is that to develop therapies that can really halt cancer cell progression Mm. um, and control it from that sense with the most minimal risk to the patient from off-target effects, from toxic chemicals, um, to really be able to manage the cancer in its place. I think um, it's a really uh, long shot kind of um, vision to be able to cure a cancer. But I think that as we build all of our new technologies, the new drugs, new treatments, um, I think we can get there mm. in, um, in a later point in time. Yeah. But at the beginning, we really need to focus on improving treatments and getting better control of the cancer, especially brain cancer, which gets away really quickly. Yeah, I think your point there too about the the off off targets of the damage and so forth that comes out is often you know almost as as problematic as the cancer itself in the end, because especially in the brain, um, especially in pediatrics where the brain is still growing and so forth, where you know radiation therapies and that are not without significant consequences. And if we can't sort of get those in check, and I think that's where the immune system approaches are so interesting because it's your own body precisely doing the work. And if we can get that to happen, it will be a much more effective tool than, you know, I mean, physics guy talking here, but, you know, serious radiation doses have big consequences in themselves. And yes, they may kill the cancer, but the, the off-target effects are pretty, pretty substantial, especially in the brain, yeah? They really are. No, absolutely. That's a really good way of summarizing it. Yeah. Well, um, Sarah, it's been great uh, chatting about this. It really is uh, great to see that you guys have such a bulk of activity coming in from various sites. And, and you're a year old now, right? Is that, We're a year uh, old. Year old. So, uh, so within a year, we should have it sorted. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I think that's, uh, you know, no doubt there'll be a lot going on. But um, can people get involved in this dinner on the 8th of October? How do they do that, if yep. so? So tickets are still on sale at dineforacure.org. Mm-hmm. So check it out. Carrie Bigmore will be there. I'll be there. We'll all be talking about brain cancer. Yeah, I think you'll be there. Carrie Bigmore will be there. We've got to, you know, <laughs> give it a credit. Yeah. Um, so Dine for a Cure. And yep. they just Google that, they will find it. Yeah. No doubt. All right, folks, uh, there you go. Get on board. I think that will be a fun night and um, hopefully generate a lot of funds for, for the program. Thanks, Thanks Sarah. Thanks so much. All right. Triple R. But I'm actually talking about other cats here. Cheetahs. Cheetahs. Specifically. Love yes, those cats. I know. Yeah, they're beautiful, they're cool. aren't they? Such spotty little cute fluffy yeah. things. So um, I'm talking about a big win for cheetahs this week. Well, potentially a big win, and this is what we're going to talk about this week. So... There was, last week, a reintroduction of cheetahs to India for the first time in 70 years. Gee. Cheetahs in India. Actually, I never knew this before I started researching this story. Did you know that cheetahs used to be throughout the subcontinent, throughout Asia, throughout all the way down to the Middle East? So right. they, cheetahs used to be prominent throughout, from basically from Africa, Pakistan, Afghanistan, 
through all that region, right through to Iran, Iraq, um, into uh, Jordan, Israel, like all these places. I was astonished. I never it's a, knew. That's a big range of environments. It is a Not huge just range of environments. Like land area, yeah. yes, but environments too. Yes. I mean, you know, mountainous. Israel is very different to yes. parts of Africa. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And not only that, if you think about India itself, mm. they were everywhere. Right. I don't think they were right down south in the tropics, but they were predominantly, they were east to west, north to south, um, you know, kind of more tropical mm. environments, more montane environments. This is... Nepal? Uh, no, not that I'm aware of, but <laughs> I don't know. Ask Dr. Ewan on that one. I'm, that's not my purview. But um, <laughs> so, but they were everywhere, right? And, yeah. and you know, as time goes on and more people move into more mm. areas and we move into these more agricultural societies, we, you know, destruction of forests, yeah. Grasslands disappear and bye-bye cheetahs. Um, in India, one of the big problems as well was actually royalty, people from uh, various provinces within India shooting them because, you know, yeah. they're pretty and they liked the skins. And so, in fact, in I think it was 1947, there was um, a, a, a local Raj from the area where they were, that in um, is believed to have shot the last three that existed yeah. uh, mm. in India in 1947. They were declared extinct in India in 19. 19- now, I should say, too, these are the Asiatic cheetahs, which actually right. are a different species to the African cheetahs. Okay. So, similar animals, just a different subspecies. Now, they do still exist in very, very small numbers uh, in Iran, I believe. But, I mean, we're talking a handful. We're not talking many, uh, you know, that would be able to be uh and i believe they're in the wild so i was gonna say in the wild or yeah, in some I think palace in the wild. no i think yeah. they're in the wild but i'm not sure wow. on the specifics okay. but look a few years ago actually i think it was gosh i think it was more like 20 years ago the indian government had the idea that they wanted to bring cheetahs back right uh and so they thought about it they thought how to do it and basically last week it happened right so because of the small numbers of these Asiatic uh, cheetahs, they couldn't import them from Iran. There's just too few. So what they've done is they've actually grabbed, uh, I think it's five females and three males from... uh, basically southeast Africa. So these are African cheetahs. Okay, slightly different beast. Slightly different beast. Yep. And here arises some of the problems, right? Okay. Um, oh, fun fact. Did you know the word cheetah is actually from Sanskrit? No, no I didn't know that. Did not? I've, I meant a chitrak, apparently. It means hmm. spotted one, but that's what cheetah means. So there you go. It shows that it's they were throughout the region. Yeah, well, <laughs> very... <laughs> spotted cat. <laughs> Indeed. Yep. Um, but so they moved these cheetahs uh, into a national park. Uh, the national park's around about 740 square kilometres. It's kind of central North India, and the idea is that they will go there, they will breed, and everybody will be happy, and there will be cheetahs back in India. Okay. It sounds good. Sounds good in theory. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. Look. What they're going to eat. Exactly. So this is the issue, right? And this brings me to my broader topic that I wanted to talk about. Did they release a whole lot of rabbits on the same day? (laughs) Exactly. exactly. (laughs) Well, this is it, right? This is about translocation because this is going to become an increasing issue as we move forward with climate change because habitats are changing everywhere. We've already seen this, right? And not only are habitats changing, we're getting issues with mismatches in habitats. So, for example, pollinators doing their thing uh, at the wrong time that leading to changes in how other mm. animals and, and, and plants can behave and can produce what they need to produce to sustain uh, yep. local yep. ecosystems. And so there have been quite uh, a few um, conservationists who are 
not so happy about this uh, move with the cheetahs because largely a lot of translocation or relocation projects, as they call them, are unsuccessful. Right. Um, and it takes a lot to be able to successfully put a species perhaps where it was, but again, this is actually a different species. This mm. is an African yeah. cheetah, not yeah. an Asian cheetah. Um, there are issues with uh, prey, you know, is there enough prey in that area? Is the habitat big enough to sustain these populations? Cheetahs roam, you know. Yep. Um, they roam over large areas. Um, and, you know, will they be able to breed in those environments? Is the habitat right, given that they are African cheetahs? Um, you know, and a lot, of, a lot of people in the area have said, well, actually, maybe we should be using these grasslands to uh, restore African lions also didn't know they existed. Mm. Um, uh, sorry, an African. Asian lions, Asian lions Indian yep. lions, yep. right? Um, which apparently exist in small parts of, of India um, and need these grassland habitats and are already there, but perhaps we should work on building mm. that population mm. rather than bringing in an entire new one uh, in the cheetahs. So it's a big issue. And as I said, with climate change, you know, this is going to become more of an issue. Animals... To, yeah. to have the optimal conditions. Maybe they can move up into mountains and things, but ultimately mountains end. They can only go so far. So when we're thinking about um, moving into the future, thinking about things like pest control, thinking about things like, you know, we we did translocation here with the cane toad. Look how yeah, that yeah. turned out. Worked out well. <laughs> Worked the, out really yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. So I think the you know the literature um, as I was reading it really talks about how to do this properly because it is largely unsuccessful when it happened. Yeah, Apparently yeah. there was a group of uh, eastern quolls that they tried to move uh, back into a, a park in uh, Jervis Bay, New South Wales, and within three months, 80% of them yep. were gone. Gone, yeah. Right? And this is an apex predator. Yeah. We're not talking about a quoll here. We're, we're talking not, about an apex predator. Absolutely. But there are other issues there. Do they have the prey to yeah, sustain? Yeah, yeah. Because I was going to ask, there's also a, a balance has been established in the environment with That's regards right. to population That's of right. the prey animals. Yeah. And you're suddenly going to put an apex predator in there. That's yep. going to affect things all the way down the line. That's right. That's yeah. right. And so they were talking about, well, then do you supplement their diets with releasing other predators, uh, other pe prey? But then that causes a whole bunch yep. of other issues. Rabbits. Yeah. Well, and it's not. It's also not mimicking natural conditions, <laughs> no. right? Um, and so I think this whole issue of translocation moving forward. Um, is a big one and one yeah. that people have to think about carefully and thinking about, you know, carefully establishing what needs to happen. Um, and, you know, there's a whole heap of ethics behind it as yeah. well. But uh, I think where you can control environments like, you know, the Lord House Stick Index, yeah. uh, Stick Insect, yeah. and where you can con carefully control land by natural barriers, things yeah, will be different. Yeah, but I mean... But in an area like that, that's an enormous area. I hope they've tagged them in some way that they, they can have, track so them. They have, so they are yeah. tracking them to, to see what they It'd be do. It'd funny if they all just split up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in different directions. Like, you guys are supposed to be breeding. Get back together. Yeah, well, they are going to keep them in a relatively small area to start right. with because okay. they're quite territorial and yep. apparently will come back to home base. Yeah. So, anyway, watch this space. We'll see how it Amazing works. Amazing stuff. I think it's... Um, look, it's, it's, it's good to see some of these projects are going, but, gee, I think they really have to have a broad idea. I remember when they were talking about releasing um, certain mosquitoes that could or could not transmit malaria. And the first question I asked was, what other populations are kept in check by those mosquitoes? Exactly. Forgetting humans, yep. they do bite other animals yep. in the wild. And, yep. and how does that affect other... And, and the answers I got at the time are, oh, we haven't thought about that. Yeah. I thought, whoa. I think that's the thing. There's so Tough much stuff. to think about, yeah. right? It's so complex. No, so. All right, we have to finish. Uh, Dr. Ailey, thanks so much for that. Interesting story. Dr. Sarah Best, great to have you in the studio. Thanks for having me. Triple R. 
Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.